0: This is our league, and this is your league. Broadcasting from the 55-yard line in Japan to the shores of the Great White North and everywhere around the world on Gridiron America Radio and the Sports History Network. When the end came, some teams had fewer than 3,000 paying their way in, and some of those were talent scouts from NFL teams looking for players to stock their rosters. Why didn't it all work out? There are a number of answers. The WFL started up just as the nation's economy turned down, and the millionaires bankrolling the teams decided that the way to remain millionaires was to cut their losses. The governors of the World Football League have determined that this enormous capital expenditure, in light of an unstable economy in our nation, continuing inflation, no assurance of national television revenues, and a softening market for new leagues and professional sports was an unwise investment. Probably most important, though, was the miscalculation that football-hungry Americans would eat up still more pro football. They didn't. They just chewed on the WFL for a while and decided that they didn't like the taste. Bill Plant, CBS News, New York.
1: everybody from japan it is a new episode of the from the 55 yard line podcast and uh we have a it's dave and i tonight and we have a gentleman here with us that i've been wanting to talk to literally for years and as i've explained i think in this podcast and then on my other podcast in japan when i came to japan i had to get rid of a lot of football books except the ones that didn't have a digital copy And I wanted to keep. So it's kind of, you know, you got to make decisions when you move. Well, the books that I took with me to Japan about the world football league, all of them were written by Mark Speck, the noted um, pro football researcher association member. um, Prolific author. I can say that right, Mark.
0: Yeah, I I guess you can.
1: (laughs) Um, I mean, if there's a, yeah, world foot. I mean, the World Football League.
0: How many books have you written? Um, well, let's see. We start. I started out um, with Todd Mayer doing the uh, original um, WFL encyclopedia. Um, okay, back in two thousand six, and it went pretty well, and it started to sell. And I got an idea because I always wanted to do a book about the Florida Blazers, uh, who were in seventy four. Um, you know. Never got paid the last 13 weeks of the season. Came with a point of winning the championship. Always thought it was a great story. Did an article for the Coffin Corner on them. And I said, oh, I'm going to throw this idea at my publisher. He said, yeah, great. Sounds good. So I did that one. Um, and then I did uh, another book on uh, the, the whole league, which covered all the teams. And that was called Wiffle. Um, and uh, that was the nickname for kind of derogatory nickname for the WFL. And uh, did that one and did well, um, both with reviewers and with, uh, you know, with sales. So uh, after I took a a sabbatical doing a a book about a minor league football team from my state of Pennsylvania um, and did that one, then I went back to the wheels, Detroit wheels, who are another team that didn't get paid. uh, But they didn't have as much success. They really had a lot of problems um, that were a lot worse, I think, than the Blazers. Um folded after 14 games. Um, a lot of guys didn't get paid. Um, so uh, and and again, that's been well received. So right now I'm working on two more. Um, one on the San Antonio wings and an updated version of the encyclopedia.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. And um when are those gonna be out? Are though when are you looking at hopefully those coming out?
0: Well, I was hoping they were gonna come out. Um Early this or last year, I should say. Now it's January 24 24. Um, I have the San Antonio Wings book. It's pretty much done. And, but, you know, COVID kind of hit. Um, my, my publisher is just kind of a small mom and pop kind of publisher, St. Johan Press. And they really had a, you know, took a hit with everything. Um, had a trouble with not being able to get the book, you know, book sales, uh, book presentations, that kind of thing. Things slowed down. So uh, the wings book is ready to go. It's uh, on a wing and a prayer—the short, turbulent flight of the San Antonio Wings. Um, I always liked their story. Um, I think it came out very well. Um, there was a—I think what sold it to my publisher was a story about the the one player who was—it was identity theft in the WFL. He he claimed he was Jack Party and he called Perry Moss, the uh, San Antonio Wings coach, said. Hey, Perry, I got this linebacker. I, he was a good guy, good prospect, but I can't use him. It's a numbers game. I can't, you know, fit him in. If you'd, you know, I'd be happy if you'd sign him. I think he'd be a good fit for your team. He goes, all right. He sent him down. He said his name was John Meager, M-E-E-G-E-R. Um, and he talked to uh, uh, George Blankenship, who was the uh, assistant coach for defense. And uh, he said, where'd you go to school? Um Western Lutheran University in Kentucky. And Blankenship had spent his life scouting in Kentucky. Knew every school <laughs> in Kentucky. This is the worst guy to see. i never heard of it. Um, And he's stammering around. Well, uh, I went to North Carolina. You know, okay, well, they looked all around there, couldn't find anything. He played in one game with the team, ticked everybody off, Um, he ticked off Lonnie Warwick, who was their middle linebacker. Um, you know, it's not some guy to get ticked off because he was the one that got in a fight with his own teammate, Joe Cap, when they both were with the Vikings. So not a guy to, you know, to try to tick off and they were watching films and, you know, and they were watching, they had just beaten or lost to, uh, the Philadelphia bell. And he gave up like 200 and some yards rushing. And, uh, meager stands up in the middle of the meeting and goes, You know, if I was playing middle linebacker, they'd have never rushed for that many yards. And Lonnie Warwick just sat there doing the slow burn. You know, he's just like, I was the middle linebacker in that game. It wasn't my – so he was, you know, he went to – I think he went to Portland. They played there, and he played on special teams. And uh, they came back, um, and they started – you know, people started – the players started to complain to Perry Moss about him. I don't like this guy. He lies a lot. He tries to cause problems. And, uh, so he did some checking and he said, you know, you're not going to Shreveport with us. You're going to stay here. Um, I'm not taking you on a trip with you. Okay. So George Blankenship gets to Shreveport get no sooner gets in his hotel room. The phone's ringing. It's meager calling him and say, are you sure you don't need a linebacker? I can jump on a plane and come down. He goes, no, no, we're good. So they, he didn't play in that game. They came back. Um, he, Perry Moss finally calls Jack party and says, Jack, Why'd you send me this guy? This guy's nothing but trouble. And he goes, I didn't send you anybody. I didn't call you. He's like, (laughs) okay. So, you know, he gets does some digging and he he says to the coaches, he goes, get him out of here, you know, get him out of here, cut him. And this was like toward the end when the WFL was getting ready to fold. And he goes to a Jaguar um, dealership in town in San Antonio, writes a phony check. Drives off with the Jaguar, goes to like New Orleans and the cops are after him. FBI's after him. Turns out his name is really George Myers. He's been trying to get into like, you know, join teams all over the country. Atlanta Falcons, the 49ers, disguising his voice as like different team officials and all this stuff. And they finally, I don't I think they caught him. I never really did hear a resolution about it. Couldn't find one but it was just an amazing story. This the kicker, Ed Strickland, who was there and he got cut the same day. He said, you know, I saw him once he stayed with me and he took off with a loaf of bread, half a jar of peanut butter and a six pack. And I haven't seen him since. And he got, I guess he got a Christmas card. He said from him from down in South America, who's in mining or something or whatever, who knows? And it's, but my, my uh, publisher said, yeah, Okay, we'll do the book. That sounds like a good story. So So we'll do the book, you know. So, and I wrote an article. I think it appeared in the uh, coffin corner about it. Um, So, yeah. So I'm waiting for that when it's set. Um, The encyclopedia, I have overdone it with my research. The original uh, encyclopedia was like 384 pages. Depending on the font size we use, it's either going to be 900 or 1500 pages. For this new one.
1: <laughs> Oh, wow. Oh, well, you know what? That's going to be a huge shipping cost for me to get it to Japan. So hopefully.
0: Well, <laughs> well you know, we've talked about making a, a two-volume set, like, yeah. by a year. You know, one for 74, one for 75. Um, I've got the chronology that I'm writing, and I'm still working on it, is 400 pages alone. That's longer than the entire first encyclopedia. I've got Trades. Signings, guys get cut, you know, lawsuits, anything that I can come up with, any kind of milestone, any kind of happening that happened in the league from seventy three all the way up to about eighty five. Okay, there was stuff well, that happened. Well, the thing so is, what's sorry? The,
1: oh no, no. The thing is with the World Football League, it, there is so much craziness that happened during those brief two years this, the team played but obviously in everything that led up to it with the teams being formed mm-hmm. with um you know i mean you start with um you know Gar- um gary davidson with yeah. the whole genesis of the league and although i mean i read i read his book recently because it's one of those you know one of those i it was a it was a vintage copy i got and i go well i got to read this and it was a it was it was a beautiful library vintage copy and right. hearing his stories about how the league started i mean every every team has its own crazy you know set of crazy stories like um you know there's one person in particular when it comes to the world football league that i love i can never get enough of learning about and that's the king.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew you were going to say that. I just knew it. He's the same. I feel the same. I feel the same way. He is just a personality. I mean, the guy just, he, you know, he had talent. He really did. I think he would have been a good quarterback, except for the fact, I think he was just really uncoachable. He just knew everything about football. And, you know, he, he ticked off every coach he probably ran into, except for Waller. Ron Waller who coached him in the minor leagues and then with a bell, um, he kind of got used to him and just kind of said, okay, Kings being King, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, he was just a personality that was unique. You know, I mean, he played all around uh, all the different teams, different leagues. He had a cup of coffee with the Patriots in 68. I think it was, he went to the CFL played in the, you know, with the, uh, Pottstown firebirds. They've got that, uh, NFL films, great film about that. Oh yeah, and then the uh, the the uh, follow up. I don't know if you've seen that one too. Yeah, I did later, see the follow up, which had him in there now as an Indian with the long hair, and he's going to Vegas to sing at the Miss Miss you know Miss America pageant or something, and he was like an Indian persona, some some an Irish guy from Jersey. Now he's <laughs> all of a sudden an Indian, you know, and you know he just. You know, he'd come to the camp, you know, with his customized Cadillac with a phone in it, you know, and, you know, get a bullhorn out and go, okay, the King's here, the King's here, you know, and he just was a very interesting guy. I mean, you had to, you know, you had to love him. Um, I think my favorite quote was the second year of the WFL 75 when they switched coaches, when Waller left and they brought in Willie Wood, who liked him more conservative game plan whereas waller was the wild and crazy sets and the formations and everything you know and halfback passes and what have you and willie wood was more conservative so the two of them really didn't click because they had bob davis there who would who was more of the conservative type of quarterback so they kind of had a back and forth with uh, who was going to start and they had a game i can't remember what game it was and they were down at the one yard line and king decides to run his quarterback sneak Gets stopped, comes back to the to the sidelines, and Willie goes, "What did you run, King? Quarterback sneak." He goes, "We don't have a quarterback sneak." He goes, "Well, I figured they wouldn't expect it because we don't have one." You know, so just, But that's how he was. You know, he just did things his own way. A lot to a lot of detrimental. Some of it was really good. Like I said, he was a talented guy. You know, he just didn't fit that mold of. He was kind of short. I think it was about 5'10 or so, you know, at the time, they're looking for guys 6'2", six, 6'3", six, you know, big strapping guys like Terry Bradshaw, that kind of thing, Dan Pastorini, and he was just a kind of a short guy. He had a great arm. He had a great football mind, but I think he just thought he was smarter than everybody, even his coaches, and he just did what he wanted to do, but he was just an amazing – you know, I, and then there was another thing there. I don't know if you remember that at the end of the 74 season, um, the, uh, he, they were going to play the Chicago Fire in the last game of the season Well, Chicago didn't want to play. They said, it's meaningless. This game doesn't mean anything. We're not going to make the playoffs, and we're not going to win if we do make them, so we're going to forfeit. Well, King just went beside himself. I guess he had a a clause in his contract that if he threw for so many yards or threw many touchdowns, he'd get a bonus. And he was just, just short of those. He said, come on, I don't care who we play. Just get us into the game. I want to play a game. Get us a game. I don't care what team it is. I don't care what league it is. Just <laughs> he was just like that. He was, you know. Um, I, I've talked. I don't know if you ever met his son Jimmy. No, um, no. I was going to ask you bit.
1: about. Have, have you talked to the family?
0: I have. It, it was a long time ago that Jimmy was. Jimmy was around. I haven't seen him for quite a while. Um, he was an interesting guy. He just you know, I I think that you know he he just accepted him as he was. You know, he wasn't a really good dad. wasn't there very right. much. And, but, you know, he didn't really have a lot of like an ax to grind. I mean, he just accepted him as what he was. He was just into himself, narcissistic, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, You could tell there was love there when he was being interviewed um, and talking to you that he did. He was just a unique guy. And that's what he would say. And that's how he was. And, but, uh, you know, I just, just, that was one of the things when I was thinking about, you know, getting into the PFRA and writing a book. The first thing I was going between was the WFL or the USFL because the USFL had just kind of folded shortly yeah. before this. So I was really torn. I was like, eh. I got the USFL. I had the two um, USFL guides that they had guides and registers from the sporting You know, had all the games in it for the first two years. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, this would be easy to do because you got all this stuff and a good jumping off point, but no, I'm going to do it the hard way and take the year the league that's 15 years old. There's nothing about it. and, And, you know, there's no books on except for Herb Gluck's book. Right. And, you know, so I just, yeah, I'll do the UF or the WFL. So that's what I did. And, you know, I was, I started, you know, the old microfilm machines in the libraries going through them and, you know, zipping through those till my eyeballs would implode and, you know, just looking up old articles and stuff. And as I, as I researched it, I really like, like you said, Greg, it's just the stories were just yeah. amazing. I mean, you know, I know that USFL has some great stories, you know, the books that uh, Paul Reeves has, has written. Um, I liked uh, what's his name? Pearlman's book. Yep. Um, I know a lot of people don't. I thought it was okay. Um, you know, again, it just, you know, did a little bit more of the kind of lighter side of it. And it did a lot of stories, but WFL, I mean, guys not getting paid teams, you know, players moving in with each other and trying to, you know, survive, And you know, uh, Mike McBath from the Blazers telling me on the phone that, you know, um, you know, we'd, we sitting on the sidelines, you could look out and see them repossessing our cars in the locker room in the parking lot during the game you know, and, you know, they're standing there and they're like helpless, like, oh, you know, and guys getting their electricity turned off. Uh, Jack Pardee takes a, his wife takes a $20 bill into to pay for some groceries. And I guess she wrote a check and the manager followed her home, took the groceries and we're not going to take this check. We think it's probably bad because you're with the Blazers, you know, and, you know, Jack Pardee trying to buy something with, with a $20 bill and the guy's looking at it like it's counterfeit. He's checking it out, you know, and all this stuff, you know, just crazy stories. And, you know, Tommy Reeman eating McDonald's three times a day he goes, I, I'll never eat McDonald's again. Never will eat McDonald's. I had it three times a day for the whole time I was in Orlando. And he goes, I just can't eat it. anymore. So yeah, just great stories. And that's what steered me toward the WFL. And I haven't regretted it at all you know, with all those books I wrote, with the new ones coming out, I, I just, you know, and, and people just can't seem to get enough of them. They're just like, are you going to write a book about the sun? Are you going to write a book about the bell? Are you going to write a, you know, I'd love to write a book on every team. I really, would. I think they would probably fill a book, every one of them, you know, but I don't know if my publisher would, you know, I might be a little bit WFL overload for him, but you know, I, I would gladly do it because there's so many great stories. Well, and the thing is, I mean, you are—I mean, you are the historian for the World Football League. Nobody
1: else is. I mean, Herb Luck, and he unfortunately has passed away. Yeah. Um, Gary, um, I always say, want to say Gary Daniels. You know, Gary Davidson. I always, you know, thinking of the Lions <laughs> quarterback. Um, yeah. I mean, he's still around. You have yeah. obviously our friend Upton Bell is still going strong. Yeah, but and they've all written books. You know about. Yeah. But you, I mean, you've you're the king. I mean, literally, to, to, well, to, you are the king of the You are the king of the king of the castle when it comes to the World well, Football League. Um, I
0: appreciate that, Craig. Thank you.
1: And uh, I do, re- you know, it's funny, you know, talking about the Wiffle book. I brought that uh, book with me. I was going to Hawaii for Navy training, and um, the the intelligence center where I was working at was right next to aloha stadium so every time i got passed by there had your book i was reading up on the hawaiians um and i was just you know i was such a a football nerd uh you know inside the in the skiff where i worked at it's like yeah it's right. aloha stadium i was talking the young the, the, the guys that i the younger guys that were all football fans obviously mm-hmm. had no idea what the World Football League was and oh, yeah. that there was even a team in Hawaii of all things right um so my my next question is the hawaiians right what you know of all the the teams in the World Football League there were really if and, and please correct me if i'm wrong but if you talk about successful teams there was only a select few were the hawaiians really would you consider the Hawaiians a successful world football league team?
0: That's a good question. Um they got off to kind of a rough start because the people that were running it at the beginning were mainlanders they used to call them. Right. And they were they came up with some really bad decisions like same day broadcasts of home games. They would they would air them the same day in Hawaii. So people decided you don't have to go. Why do we? Why are we going out and sitting maybe in the rain or whatever it might be? I can watch it like two hours later on my TV. So, um, you know, they didn't do a lot of research. I mean, Hawaii, you know, the the population isn't quite enough to support a team because I think they did a a study that said that, you know, to fill the stadium, and I think this was Aloha Stadium, one out of fourteen people in Hawaii would have to be there. Yeah, sounds about right. So, yeah, so you know, it's it's not that it's not a, I you know, but their owners were good owners. I mean, you know, hammeter was was the owner, Chris Hemeter, who turned out to be the president of the league, was there, Battistone, um, and they were pretty well healed. They were very, um, you know, good owners. They really tried to do a, um, you know, a good job of of having a successful team. In Hawaii, because Hawaii was really, I don't think they had had any teams except for the, you know, the college there, Mm. um, the rainbows. But, um, you know, they were there and I thought they did a good job. Um, They didn't really have a lot of money trouble because of the fact they were so well, um, you know, well financed. But, you know, because of the fact that they had to stay in Honolulu Stadium, the old Termite Palace. Um, for the first season and about half the second one, because uh, Aloha Stadium, they had a lot of problems, a lot, lot of delays with construction problems. They have t- one time they thought it was cursed. So they brought in like a shaman or something to do uh, like a, you know, read a, a, a prayer there to, to say because a couple of guys I get got injured. Um, there was just things that took so longer because they were hoping to start the first season there. And, you know, Honolulu Stadium was small. Um, the ticket prices were high. They, they finally wound up, um, you know, lowering them. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's just the idea that, that, like I said, Honolulu stadium wasn't that great. And, and another thing that they did went along with the same day, um, airings of the games on tape delay, they also, um, Decided that uh they were gonna they they weren't gonna play on Wednesday and Thursday with the rest of the league. They were gonna play Sunday. Week weekday football was not gonna make it in uh in Honolulu, so we're gonna play on Sunday. We don't care what the rest of you do. So everybody had to play Wednesday, Thursday except for Hawaii. So if you played a Thursday night game, say in New York, you had to fly to Hawaii in time to play again Sunday. You know, oh, Detroit, wow. the yeah, I think Detroit yeah. was the first team that had to go there and do that. And then another thing was on the East Coast, because of that, you couldn't really broadcast games because the games didn't start till midnight, you know, because right. you're in the East Coast. Yeah. So I mean, I think that you know, they 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 started out poorly the first year. Um, but then they, they picked it up. They got a lot of NFL guys that got cut. A lot of the NFL guys that, you know, got released right before the season you know, started there in the last cuts, a lot of guys, a lot of guys that they had signed the future contracts. Um, they uh, decided they they were some that got released. They came right over because, you know, winter in Hawaii is a lot better than winter in New York or Buffalo or anything like that. You know, that's why they signed so many guys and they had so many guys who did eventually play for them. Um, so, you know, they, they had Randy Johnson came in to quarterback for the giants Um And I think Ed Hargett was the other quarterback. He came from the Oilers and some other guys that they got on defense, Jim Snidecki and uh, Willie Williams. Um, Some guys are really top flight pros that, you know, uh, what happened a lot was a lot of, if they signed a future contract, they would just, their NFL team would just cut them or send them to some team like Houston where they were losing every game. And that happened a lot to a lot of the the players that signed future contracts, you know, and I thought that was kind of short-sighted and a little bit, I don't know, juvenile, I think, you know, cut off your nose tackle to spite your face, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, but, um, you know, so the second half, they, they made the playoffs. I mean, they had a great second half of the season, made the playoffs, beat Southern Cal in the first round of the playoffs real easy, about 32 to 14. Then he almost beat Birmingham in the second round. He lost only 22 to 19. So, I mean, they, they, did very well the second half of the year. The, the the second year, they got some, you know, had a lot of the guys resign again. You know, winter and and in and, and the fall in Hawaii is a lot better than winter in you know Chicago or Green Bay or something. So you know, guys are, hey, you know, we're going over there, and uh, so yeah, they had they had a pretty good team for a while there. They had Sunny Six Killer, one of the great names in football history, as far as I'm concerned um he was their starter for most of the year they had uh rico casada from uh he went to syracuse i think it was and he bounced around the cfl a couple times and but he came in he was pretty good and you know again they had that nucleus they had like john Wilbur, ken bowman um you know and a lot of guys that were nfl vets that uh you know that because they had started out the first year in 74 with I think five veterans on the whole roster of like 40 guys. The rest of them were all rookies. I mean, they they started out with a lot of um, rookies at the first year and you know, they weren't a bad team. They, and it was a good organization. The second year, the owners again were, were pretty good. I don't think they had a lot of money problems. Um, you know, not like some other teams um, until the very end, you know, toward the last couple of weeks when they started to ask them to take pay cuts and that kind of thing and the guys got kind of ticked off at that and in that last game against Southern Cal um they had they had, they had to call um Milt Holt Milt the pineapple Holt who was from Hawaii would played in the Ivy League they cut him in in training camp but they called him up he's working in the city office there in Honolulu we called him and said can you because Six Killer and Casada both quit um, right there like three days before the game the last game because they had attended a meeting the team voted we're not playing we're not gonna play this game we're done so six killer and Casada went home they roomed together and they didn't hear that there was a second meeting where they decided to play so these two guys they said well we're cutting you which was kind of again short-sighted because now they don't have no quarterbacks they cut their two quarterbacks so this is leading to the the idea of of calling Milt the pineapple hole. That was his nickname. Hmm. And he came in like the game was Sunday. He comes in on Friday. I think he had one, one practice with the team. So they call, um, where was he at? Jim Fossil, the Giants coach. He had been a, a quarterback and a coach with the Hawaiians in 74, but he left. He went to uh, work in, the, in for an air conditioning company. And that, that's what he was doing. They called him, Said, "Hey, we need another guy. Can you come over here, and and you know fly over and you know get into the play the last you know, this next game with Southern Cow? All right, give me a round trip ticket and five hundred dollars. I'll be there. You know because he was going <laughs> to probably come right back. So he got there on Saturday. He doesn't even get the practice. So you've got two quarterbacks who had one practice between them, and he didn't win the game. Unfortunately, it wasn't one of those real feel good stories." They had guys playing out of position. They had guys playing wide receiver. Then, then you know, some guy was practicing. Chuck Detwaller, I think another NFL vet, was, was practicing at quarterback just to be an emergency quarterback. He hadn't played since high school. He's a defensive back in the NFL and with the Hawaiians. So um, that's really when it hit was that at the end. I mean, that did it with a lot of the teams, um, you know, but before that, I, I really think they were, you know, I mean, you, you got to consider that the travel expense they had to go on road trips, you know, I mean, they would have to go to like Florida, then play Jacksonville, then play, you know, somebody. So then they'd head home. They'd be on the road for like 18 days, 21 days. And, you know, when they, when they had training camp, they trained in California. So they could have uh, you know, somebody to play when it was Southern Cal, they were at Riverside. And I think, uh, Oh, they were where was uh the Hawaiians at? It was one of those UC uh campuses. Um and they were, you know, they 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 trained there, but it was just all these wet, wacky kind of trips they had to make. And that I think that's one reason why the NFL has never had a team in Hawaii. It's just too tough. I mean, you know, they play the games in in uh
1: and the Wac or like, what it was, it used to be the Wac.
0: With yeah, uh they, Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and they, they played the pro bowl there for years. Right. And, you know, they go to Europe now for one or two games a year, but to have a team like that, you know, with that time difference in the traveling, I just don't know if they'll ever have a team there. I think that was probably the only chance um, that they would, they probably ever going to have. So, um, you know, it was just a, I thought they were a decent organization, you know, money wise with the owners. Um, they just made some bad, you know, decisions at the beginning when they had somebody else run the team until Hemeter and, and Battistone got there and, and started to run it being, you know, locals instead of these guys from on the mainland somewhere. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they were, you know, they weren't too bad. So, um, you know, and Gary Davidson, I know you've been asking me about it, mentioned his name, started the league up. Uh, this was his third try to league. He was, um, you know, helped there at the ground floor with the ABA, the American Basketball Association, sixty-seven. His role in that was has been kind of, you know, um, overemphasized, you know, lately. He really wasn't in there very long. He was there. Um, I think he had a piece of the Dallas franchise. Um, he was he was coming into meetings trying to run the thing and you know talking about. Um, you know, this and that. And George Mike who was the commissioner finally said, who is that guy? He's standing up at these meetings and making all these rules and stuff. Who is that? Oh, Gary Davidson. Oh, does he own any team? Well, not really. Okay. Mike Ann took him out in the hallway. That yeah, will see. You. They didn't see him again. So, you know, I mean, again, he was there a little bit at the beginning, um, but you know, because the ABA, you know, was still around, by 72, he decided to try hockey um, and started the World Hockey Association. Um, that was a little bit more involved in that, obviously, I think. And uh, even though he'd never seen a hockey game, couldn't figure out what the red line was or the blue line was. when he went to a game with uh, Crazy Bill Hunter, who was an owner of one of the Canadian teams. And he looks at Davidson and he looks at the other guys there and he goes, what the hell is this guy? He doesn't know anything about the this- sport. He's going to run the league, you know, so, um, but you know, again, after a year, it was 73, it was doing reasonably well. You know, they were, you know, I'm not doing too bad. And then, uh, he, uh, he got the idea, uh, I'm going to take on the big fish in the pond. I'm going to take on the NFL. So he, uh, you know, decided to do that and announced, you know, that, well, it's interesting His WFL, the WFL I write about, was actually the the third WFL in about a year. And, you know, in my research, in the spring of 73, somebody got together. It was like Oklahoma City or something. Said he was going to start up a World Football League. Never really got anywhere. Then this other guy, Tony Rosano and Louis Goldman, they started out something they called the Universal Well, they called it the World Football League. And... They started, you know, around August or something, July, making a lot of noise about all this, that. And the other thing turns out that John Bassett, who was kind of, you know, one of buddies of Davidson um, went to the Senate representative to the, to the meeting that really announced this and then had uh, another player or not something player, another guy with him. And I can't remember who it is off the top of my head. And they went to the meeting wrote down all this stuff, got all the information, went back to Davidson said, okay, look at this. What do you think? This looks like a pretty good template for a league. They said, oh, okay, looks good to me. So they found out, Davidson found out that these guys were going to announce at a certain time in October of 73. He beat them to the punch, said, here's the World Football League. So now these guys can't be the World Football League because he's the World Football League. So they changed the name of their league to the Universal Football League. I've not heard this story before and wow. Well, it gets interesting too. I mean, it's more interesting, Um, but you know, so they, they were, they, they tried to, you know, move and have their own league. Um, The world football league was moving along, you know, having meetings, announcements, here's our, you know, our owners, here's our, you know, where's our cities, that kind of thing. And so Rezano was like, you know, and then because of this, Davidson had also moved up the timetable to 74 because his original idea was to have it start in 75. So the Universal League now said, Well, we're going to start in 74. So then Davidson said he's going to start in 74. So, but the WFL, the real WFL, really got off to a good start, you know, signing players, um, you know, um, and uh, Marisano really wasn't having much luck with it and he wasn't making any headway because. Davidson was kind of scarfing up all the potential owners, you know, the, the economy back then in 73, 74, was really starting to go downhill. It was terrible. Um, So you didn't have a lot of big money men that were willing to, you know, throw some money into this. So um, he got them and Rezano just kind of like, well, okay, we'll start in 75. No, I guess we're not going to start at all. So, and on top of that, then Rezano then calls Davidson and asks him for a job. <laughs> and Davidson hired him to work in the league office and then sent him down to Jacksonville to run the Sharks. He was a front office guy with the Sharks. He must have seen Kindred Spirit, I guess, and you know, maybe felt bad about, hmm. you know, sabotaging the guy's plans. I don't know. But um, he went ahead and he uh um he started, the, you know, he he ran there and I think he was in with Chicago wins in 75. But yeah, so he had, he got started. Davidson, you know, after he kind of beat this guy to the punch, um, you know, they were making plans early, late 73, early 74. Um, they had some, you know, teams, leagues or a city set up. Most of these guys, they were called franchise holders. They were just basically holding onto the franchise. Until somebody came and bought it from, them. and so you know you had Nick Maletti, you had um, Howard Baldwin from uh, the WHA. They were all you know Davidson's buddies, um, and so all these guys just got um, you know franchises. They didn't pay for them. Hey, okay, you want uh, Boston? Okay, you got Boston. He had Steve Arnold. He wanted a, He wanted a team in Tokyo. Um, that was his first choice. But, you know, he went over there. He did some, uh, what do you call it? Oh, um, he did some, uh, you know, research, found out they really weren't into football over there. It was baseball, soccer, that kind of thing. Uh, They played it at high school and college, I guess. And um, so they, um, you know, he he gave up that idea. That was about as far as it got. And he also had uh, Bob Wolf, the agent at the time, He did it like a European tour of going to different uh, places and what have you. And, uh, you know, he went over to Dublin, Ireland, Rome, London, talking to investors, possible investors back at, you know, at that time. Um, I think it was just kind of like a vacation. I don't know if they were really serious, Um, but he went around and did all that. But, you know, Steve Arnold, then he went to Memphis and, uh, didn't have any luck there because Memphis was still on the short list for the NFL to expand. So they didn't want this guy in here. They wanted the NFL. They hosted a WFL or an NFL uh, you know, exhibition game for many years there in Memphis really wanting a, a, an NFL team. So they kind of, you know, ignored him. And it, like you'd said earlier, Greg, the teams moved so much, you know, at the beginning of the, you know, like 73, 74, it was just amazing. I mean, uh, you had Florida, which started out as Washington Baltimore. It was like a regional franchise. They couldn't get a, a, a lease with the RFK. They couldn't get a lease with uh, you know, uh, in Baltimore. They tried Annapolis. They tried uh, Then he went to Norfolk. By then, Joe Wheeler, the owner, was running out of money. So then they, Rami Loudbottom and then moved to Orlando. You had Philadelphia, which was going to move to Portland, which was going to move to Mexico City, which was going to move <laughs> It was just crazy, you know, and I I made a list of all the different places, you know, I mean, even like Bassett, he was starting out in Toronto until the government made a big fuss about, we don't want them coming in and encroaching our territory. You're going to cause the end of the CFL. And, you know, so he couldn't fight city all. He went through, tried and thought about about a dozen cities to go to. I mean, we're talking Miami, Green Bay, Syracuse, Buffalo, Um, all these different cities that he thought about. And then by that time, Memphis had been turned down for an NFL franchise. Now they were looking for a WFL franchise. Ah, there we go. Light comes on with Bassett. He moves to Memphis. And by that time, Arnold was in Houston. um, And then he was there. But it was like, yeah, it was like that. They, you know, they had teams that moved. And Davidson, you know, again, it was just these guys, his buddies, his tennis pals, his guys from the WHA, the ABA. Here you take this team, you take this team, and then you know. I think the first guy to sell his was Nick Maletti. He sold his to Tom Rieger from Chicago. I think four hundred thousand. And all these guys sold all these, and the the thing was, instead of putting all this money into like a kitty, like a fund, to kind of get the league off the off the off the starting gate, the guys kept the money. I mean, you, you, talk about 12 teams times like half a million, you're talking $6 million that you got in reserve to when you had problems, you could do that. So, um, you know, they kept the money, um, you know, and some of the guys got front office jobs, some of the founders and, uh, but he, uh, Davidson, I think he sold his, I don't know where his was. I'm thinking, oh, I'm sorry. I hit my table here. Um, he had a, a franchise that he sold as well. And, uh, you know, he, he he made himself commissioner, which I thought was a mistake. Very good promoter, not a good administrator, is my opinion. I think they needed a football guy in there. They needed somebody with some, um, you know, experience. Um, you know, names that were bandied about were Al Davis, Don Klosterman. Both those guys would have been great. Davis would have been especially great, I think. Um, he was one of the guys that voted to, when they voted to add Memphis and Birmingham, he was one of the three that voted that they should add them back in in seventy six when they tried to apply for membership. But you know, I, Davidson was not, a, no, not a, an administrator. He said they tried stuff that they tried in the WHA that didn't work at a football team because you got smaller rosters in hockey. You know, they tried to keep teams afloat when they should have just folded earlier than he did. Detroit was one. Um Jacksonville, they I know they folded but you know they should have folded them just, you know, get them out, move them, do something, just make a decision. And I think that was a, probably on his part was probably, you know, again, he he did blame himself for a lot of stuff. There was no vetting of owners. You know, you had Bud Huckle in Detroit who with some hospital administrator and you know he wound up suing because he said that uh you know he was kicked out of the group that was going to own the team probably for the better um but uh you know then you had that you had guys like um you know the um, Detroit i mean you had 33 owners technically in my opinion what the problem was you had 33 investors you didn't have that strong central figure like I mean, every football team, every sports team has investors, minor investors, minority investors that come in and put a few bucks in or whatever. But you got that strong guy in the middle who's running the meetings, running the day-to-day operations, saying this is making the decisions. That's what happened with Detroit. You had three invest, thirty-three investors. They'd have meetings every Friday, and every Friday they'd go, "What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do?" And they wouldn't do anything. So these guys are suffering. The players, the staff not getting paid. And, and there's no, um, you know, nothing being done about it because there wasn't that person who wanted to take charge and run the thing. So, hmm. you know, I think that was more, you know, it was a joke around the league, of course, and I'm sure you guys have heard it. They had 33 owners and, you know, and John Bassett said they had 33 guys who put 15 cents in, and you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if they're going to be in existence when we get up there to play them. So, you know um, but it was just the idea they had investors. They didn't have that strong, Guy in a, at, at the helm, you know, Esther Edwards did. She was the vice president of Motown Records. She started to have a little bit of time to get in there and 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 spend some time with the team. And the team kind of stabilized for a while there in the spring of 74. But she just couldn't, you know, devote her time to her. She's the vice president of Motown Records. I mean, she's running a record company. that's like huge at a time. I'm mean, getting big. you got Marvin Gaye. You've got Stevie Wonder. You've got all these acts. And she's trying to run that. She just didn't have the time or the, you know, the 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 uh, inclination. I think to run the team to be the, the majority owner. So you had that, um, you know, and then you know after after a while, then uh, you know who's going to buy them? Upton Bell was going to buy them, move them to Charlotte. Um, John Delorean was going to buy them, keep them in um, Detroit. Um, Jim, Dick Volpe, one of the uh, the co-owners, was going to move them to Louisville. Um, so, you know, all this stuff came along and, you know, nothing ever happened. He just said, all right, we're just going to hold. And that's what happened. Same with Jackson.
2: Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Was at the end of the day, we've heard the stories of the, the failures, the failing teams is, is amazing. Were there any, were there any teams that were actually ownership groups that actually were doing a good job? Overall, I like, mean, the, the the Hawaiians was a, was a good story, but they ran out. Was there towards the end? Was there anybody who was left standing that could have stood, or was it all just let's get out of this as quick as possible?
0: No, there were a couple. There were a couple, Dave, and I think you got to start with John Bassett. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was a great owner. If they could have cloned him, that would really helped the league. If they could have made about ten John Bassetts, that league would probably still be in existence, or it would have merged anyway. He was great. Never missed a paycheck in 74 him and Philadelphia. Those are the two teams in 74. that didn't miss a paycheck. Um, He did a great job. First class operation, you know, players owner, um, a guy who really, um, you know, loved his players, loved the team really was involved, had the, you know, had the money, had the money to back himself up, could make the claims. I'm going to start with, uh, you know, um, I'm going to sign Jim Kick, Larry Zonka, Paul Warfield, went out and did it, made a lot of headlines. Um, you know, he was, to me, the best owner. I mean, if, if they're going to start a WFL Hall of Fame and I've thought about it, he would be the first inductee because he was really everybody that I've talked to, all the players, all say first class operation, no problems, never a missed paycheck, never any problems with 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 money or anything like that. So you got to start with him. I think another guy, and he, and he was again, still good in 75, right to the end Bassett was. And he, like I said, he tried to get into the NFL really, you know, really made a concerted effort to get in the NFL. And he had John Bosacco from uh, Philadelphia. Again, he was another one didn't miss a paycheck in 74. I don't think he missed any in 75. He didn't, you know, they, they had terrible attendance, but he paid everybody on time. Um, Again, first class guy. Everybody liked him. Um, very good with the uh, you know with the players. Uh, good owner. Um, just had no money uh, as far as like in tickets and that kind of thing. And you know attendance was just especially that second year was just awful. Uh, when they played in Franklin Field, you thought they would have been done doing better, but you know because JFK was a just a dump at the time. And uh, but I think those two. Uh, Birmingham, you got to look at um, the only thing that hurt them. Putnam, Bill Putnam signed all these future contracts. Kenny Stabler, Elsie Greenwood, Rayfield Wright. And I think it would wound up being like a million and a half in bonuses alone, which would have helped him run his team. You know, I I realize you want to make headlines. They were good for the newspapers, the, the future contracts. Look who was coming next year or the year after we're going to have this guy with us. Kenny Stabler is going to lead us to the World Bowl. He probably would have, um, but you know they did that, and uh, you know he just that what hurt his team. I think they missed the last five paychecks on that team. But he, for the while, longest time, he was a good owner, um, but he just you know overspent on those future contracts. I think was what hurt him. Um, you know. Mm. I tell you, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying hard to think of anybody else. No, no, I mean, couple... it
2: it it's it, it, I mean so many, so many issues going along the way. Yeah. But I guess uh, my other my other question would be along the lines of um of Davidson. Um being this was his third attempt to 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 start up a league. I mean, at the end of the day, was it naming himself commissioner, a way to keep himself around?
0: Well, probably because then, you know, right before he did that, he quit as the president of WHA, yeah. you know, and, you know, I think that was probably it. I think he wanted to, you know, to be, I, I think that's probably a good, a good analogy and a good, you know, a good way to look at it. I think that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be in the limelight. Hey, look, I'm the commissioner of this thing when he should have hired somebody with a little bit more like the ABA hired George Mike and. You know, and uh, the old a- AFL hired Joe Foss, even though he wasn't a football guy, he was very, you know, a lot of credibility mm-hmm. and people liked him. And like I said, if you'd have picked a football guy, even Upton Bell, you know, they talked about Burt Bell Jr., but even like Upton Bell would have been a, a good guy to, you know, to have at the head. But like you said, I, I, I agree with that. I think that's a good way to look at it, Dave. I really do. I think that he probably wanted to be in the limelight because this was his baby. This is, you know, people make fun of it. He said, this was my best deal and, you know, best, you know, of the three. Uh, um, I don't know about that. That's what he says or said. But, um, you know, I just think that, you know, if he had a football guy there at the league, maybe made him with something else in the league and stayed in it, maybe president while somebody else was commissioner. Um, I think that would have helped him a lot. So um, he, he, he was he was definitely a great salesman. He could, oh, yeah, he,
2: he, he could, he could connect with somebody with money and, and just give them, at least give them a, a write a check to get in. Like right. it, it, it was, it was a, it was amazing reading about him and just just his ability to sit down and, and have this, put this vision down and then go, yeah, I'm in here. Here you go. <laughs> like, it's amazing. Yeah.
0: No, it was, he, he was, he was a go-getter. He was a guy who, you know, like I said, he was in the ground floor on the ABA, WHA, they both lasted into the late 70s. Yeah. Uh, you know, so um you gotta give them credit for that. You gotta give them credit for raising salaries because the NFL had to start playing paying more money uh because of the fact they were signing these guys. So um yeah, I just think that if he would have just curbed his 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 ego a little bit, not all the way, because like you said, he had his good points, he had his good way of being a salesman, being a promoter. Getting those guys to buy into this thing, you know, that's not easy to do. You know, you're trying to find 12 guys who are got enough money to to get into something. You don't know if it's gonna work, you don't know if it's gonna last, you don't know if he's gonna get off the ground. But he was able to convince these guys to do that. So he had that 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 part of him which was which was beneficial to the WFL. So, you know, you can't look at him and just like I said, you know, sometimes make, you know, some lot, he gets a lot of ridicule which I think at times is is unjustified, I think, Mm -hmm. because he did a lot of, you know, he did a lot of, uh, you know, positive things. The league had black ownership. The league had black head, you know, uh, a black head coach in Willie Wood. A lot of black assistant coaches had a black, uh, um, you know, um, what am I going to say? This is when you got to do your editing. Um, (laughs) No, it had a lot of black uh, front office people. Um, women were involved. You had Dusty Rhodes there at the New York Stars. She was an assistant uh, general manager, knew more than probably most of the other guys in the organization. Um, And there was Diane Plotz, who was the GM for uh, Hawaii in 74 toward the end. So um, you had a lot of forward thinking people in the league, including Davidson, who was looking at this kind of thing and saying that, you know, we're going to make a move that you know, you're going to look at things that, you know, you haven't seen in the NFL. We're going to give opportunities to, I mean, I think the NFL had two black quarterbacks at the time and the WFL had like six or seven. So, you know, they were, they had that idea of looking ahead instead of turning black quarterbacks into cornerbacks or wide receivers, which the NFL was still doing, you know, you had, you know, um, guys that they said, Matthew Reed, from Birmingham. You had DC Nobles from um Houston and Shreveport. And David Mays from Houston and Shreveport. And uh Eddie McCashin from uh from Jacksonville and Reggie Oliver from Jacksonville. So you had quite a few where the NFL, I think, had JJ Jones and Joe Gilliam, I think at the time, you know, and, and maybe James Harris. So maybe it was three. But uh they still had more of that. So it was forward thinking. I think some of that came from Davidson. You gotta look at the guy was looking at, you know, the, the they, they didn't want just a football. They just didn't want a football. You had the yellow and the blue, then it turned out to be the orange and the Palomino, but like the player said, it was ours. It was something that was ours alone. You can't – nobody could copy it. We had it, and this was our football. And a lot of them, you know, after they – I think they came out and they were – the ink, the paint was coming off, the dye was coming off in the players' hands they were turning orange and Palomino yellow there in the first couple of games, especially when they sweated. And, but you know, they, in the end, they all said, this was ours. This was like the ABA basketball. This was Mm -hmm. ours. This was something that we had NFL didn't have it. CFL didn't have it. You know, they had all these different, um, Oh, what do you call it? Different prototypes. And we looked at like with swirls around it, different color schemes, you know, with laces on two sides, so you could throw it from any, Whenever you got the ball, the quarterback could throw it. Um, so they were and they forward. had the dicker rod, too. The dicker rod, you know, <laughs> it got a lot of heat again. Um, you know, um, what's his name? Alex Hawkins liked to ridicule it on the TVS games. Um, so, but it was something different. You know, I know they had to go back to the chains. Uh, and a couple of times it malfunctioned during games. They had to go to the chains in 74, I think at once in Charlotte. Uh, but, you know. Again, it was something that was different. The colored coated pants, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. You know, that one was (laughs) kind of crazy. Um, But, you know, but all these years,
2: all these years later, we're still talking about them. So, yes.
0: Yes. So it did. I mean, it it got got some publicity. I mean, whether it was, you know, what is it? Hollywood says there's no such thing as bad publicity. Right. So that's the thing, how Davidson thought. You know, I think that's how he thought. I want the, our names in the paper. I want our league in the papers. I don't care what it is. People are going to talk about it. And Like you said, Dave, we're still talking about it in 2024, 50 years later. So, you know, yeah. it's it's amazing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I just think that, you know, like I said, I mean, uh, you can't uh, – like I said, it's he's an easy target, and he always has been because of how the league did and didn't do. Um, but you know, he did a lot of good things. And I think that if you just had somebody there, a football guy to give him some credibility, some stability, I think that would have helped a lot. Um, well, Mark, let me, yeah,
1: let me ask you in terms of, um, you know, what could have helped the league now in the 1970s for those people who are listening that don't kind of realize or remember or what have you, you know, back in the early seventies. And I was a kid when, you know the the um, World Football League came about, but when I was a kid, really the only way you could watch TV in the '70s was via an aerial antenna. Right, cable wasn't prevalent. Obviously, yeah. You know, streaming. So the the fact that the TV, you know, the World Football League did not really have a TV deal, but they had TVs. Right. Could you explain to everybody what you know the the TV aspect of the World Football League? Because to me. That's one of those things that when people are talking now about alternative football leagues everybody's talking about distribution how we can watch right. a game on TV.
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean they 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 want it they they're not going to get the networks. The networks are tied up with the NFL, ABC, CBS, NBC. So they went to the U Sports network. I don't know if you guys remember that. They used to carry a lot of college basketball. Howard Hughes owned it. It was the used sports. Now I'm, I'm, I'm a little older than you guys. I think I remember, you know, these, you'd see like Montana state against, you know, Valparaiso or something, you know, and like at 11 o'clock at night. And, uh, so they went to them first, they were only going to offer them 50,000 a team, you know, to, you know, that's all they were going to pay. So then they went to TVS, which was, you know, T television sports was basically what TVS stood for. And they went a little bit higher. They went around eighty to a hundred thousand, which is nowhere near what the NFL. You had two million a year, I think, those teams made. But you know, you're kind of stuck with your choices. They went with TBS at first. TBS. Eddie Ironhorn was the uh, the president, guy that went on to own uh, the Chicago White Sox and the Bulls. He was the president of TBS, and. Uh, at first, he said, because of the newness, because it was a novelty, it was a new thing. It was an easy sell at the beginning. They sold all the spots. They sold a lot of, you know, to a lot of different sponsors. Um, so it was an easy sell. They were happy with the results. I don't know how many stations. There was way over 100 stations that they wound up being on with TVS. Um, and, you know, they didn't do too bad. But again, the teams just didn't get a lot of money out of it. But you're you're kind of stuck. So um, after that season, though, TVS was willing. They had an option year for the second year in 75. So they they decided they at first they were going to re-up. They were going to do another year. And then Hemmeter made the uh, um, announcement in April, which really wasn't a secret. They've been pursuing him since like 73. They were going to sign Joe Namath. They were going to bring Joe Namath in, play for Chicago. This was the big thing. We're going to get him. He's going to be here. He's going to be the thing. And Eddie Ironhorn walked up to um meter after that. He said, you just shot yourself in the foot. Because if you don't get Namath, you're going to look bad. And nobody's going to come to the games. And sure enough, that's what happened. Joe went back and forth. He was up to over 400,000. It was like a 40-page contract that he was working on. You know, like a lot of players that were getting offers from the WFL, Are you serious about it or are you using it as kind of leverage to get a better deal from your NFL team? I mean, it happens. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, anybody's going to do it, you know? So um, they went back and forth. And then I learned recently that he was really looking at, because he was going to sell a, sign a big deal with Fabergé. And he had to be in, you know, to do the, the beauty, Miss pantyhose and all the shaving stuff. And that's what basically killed the deal besides the fact that he said at the end, when he looked like he was going to sign, he said, all right, if we get TV, I want 15 percent. Well, the, the WFL said, well, we can't do that. You know, not thinking 85 percent of something is better than 0 percent right. of nothing. You know, hey, let Joe have his 15 percent. We still got 85 percent. So now we can't do that. Joe went back to the Jets. Um, and, you know, that was a lot of people, you know, thought that was pretty much the end whenever he didn't sign. I I think Joe would have, I don't know how good he would have done. Um, he, he'd have put a lot of, a lot of fannies in the seats, as they say. I mean, obviously they had done a lot better in Chicago than he did. Um, and they were also going to sign Walter Payton. They really went after him. Um, what's his name? Um, Eugene Polano, who was the owner, met with him. Offer him the world apartment, car, you know, all kind of money. Um Walter looked at the guy and he said, boy, I like that ring. He goes, oh, I do. It was a Chicago bear ring. And he said, here, you can have it. Takes it off his finger, gives it to Walter, you know. Uh, but in the end, he signed. I mean, you think about Joe Namath and Walter Payton on the same team with oh, John yeah. William at wide receiver. I mean, you know, they had to be better than they were. So, um, but, you know, Joe, you know, he he, I don't know. was he using again his leverage to get a better deal from the jets? Who knows, you know, was he serious about it? Uh, you know, who knows? He had been pursued for about a year and a half before that he was going to be an owner and play for a team. He was just going to be a player. You know, they were talking to him because he was going to be a free agent May 1st, 75. So they'd been talking to him for quite a while, but, um, you know, um, I think that really killed the Chicago franchise because that, what a day, I don't know how many people, it was like a couple of thousand in soldier field. And, you know, the fire had done pretty well, you know, and, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, they, uh, they started out with 42,000. The wind started out with like 2000 in their first game. And, uh, you know, but I, I think that the fire had a better owner, you know, you were talking, Earlier about good owners there, Dave. And you know, I think Roger, we'd have to add one. He was pretty uh a pretty good owner, didn't overspend, you know, players he would bring him in to talk to him. I think John Brockington from the Packers brought him in, to see if you know he'd sign. He asked for too much. He said, I'm not going that high. Thanks a lot, but no thanks. Um, and he didn't, and he got tired. What happened with him was he lost his energy for the league because he kept being told he had to pay for everybody else's mistakes here. We want to give money to Detroit. We want to give money to Jacksonville. He said, I get tired of, I'm trying to run my own team and now I'm being asked to prop up these teams. So I think toward the end and his team, you know, they, they had a rash of injuries. I mean, Virgil Carter was having a great year. Mark Keller was having a great year at running back. James Scott was a great wide receiver. Their defense was terrible. They kept bringing guys in on a weekly basis. They fired their defensive coordinator like halfway through the season, brought some other guy in. He took a look and left. Um, So, you know, they just completely fell apart, lost their last 10 games, and he didn't play the last game. So, but while he was there and while he was running the team, not being asked to prop up other other teams and losing his energy, losing his, you know, intensity losing his desire to be an owner like anybody i think would if you're asked to not only run your own team but also give other people money just for their mistakes he uh you know toward the end then he didn't he wanted nothing to do with it so and he then he kicked it i think he helped kick davidson out i think there at the end of october he had that bloodless coup i guess you could call it and it was him and maybe a couple other guys they just i think it had enough of davidson You know, so even though he was still on the board of the Southern California Sun after that, which I never understood that. It was like Larry Hatfield gets I think he got convicted for um, fraud for, you know, uh, falsifying records when he he got the loans and he was still in the league the next year. It's like, I mean, you know, I I realize any publicity is good publicity, but, you know, you got to draw a line somewhere.
1: Yeah. Federal conviction kind of draw (laughs) it. You would think. But, you know.
0: Yeah, um, you know,
2: yeah, I don't, if your dues are paid, they, they said, Well, okay, <laughs> I
0: guess,
2: I guess that's how they look.
0: Well, it it they
1: reminds look. me of the old Animal House quote,
0: Hey, we need the dues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good one. That's well, there was one, one guy, right?
1: and you and you had just mentioned him, uh, who did pay his dues, and that was John Bassett, yeah. and. When the world, I mean, the world football league had all these plans to go out. Like you said, mentioned Joe Namath, um, Daryl LaMonica, another big name that, yeah. but there were three big names that went to the world football league who, you know, Larry Zonka, Paul Warfield and Jim kick. Right. The, it, did, let me, first off, let me ask you, and I can't remember off the top of my head, Then the reason why I'm asking, but did you get a, have you gotten a chance to talk to all three sit down with all three about the leagues, about no, the World I Football League?
0: No, I wish I could have, yeah.
1: I know our mutual friend Tim Hanlon sat down with Larry Zonka. Uh, I think it was last year. And um, and Larry does talk about the World Football League in there. What was the impact of that signing with not, I mean, obviously John Bassett had money, had cool car- cash. Mm-hmm. These guys were getting paid. But the impact when that signing was made, what was what was it like back then, in the football world? What was the it reaction?
0: It was it was it was huge news. It was I mean it was Time Magazine. It was Sports Illustrated. Newspapers all over the country. It was just a huge story. And you know Art Modell said when the USFL was coming in, he said, "We're not going to do the same mistake that we did when the WFL came in. We panicked." And I think the W the NFL owners panicked a little bit when that happened because it looked like these guys mean business. These guys are signing three of the biggest names on the one of the best teams in in history, and they're coming into their league. What are we going to do about this? Then the next thing you know, Stabler signing, Craig Morton signing, and all these guys are signing. And it's like they they've got put on on alert, you know. And I think it was a big deal. It really was. You know, the headlines were the deal that shocked sports, you know, and everybody was talking about it. Um, I think that, you know, and I, I really think that the NFL panicked a little bit when they started signing, and he started getting restraining orders, starting to sue. You can't take our players, you know, and this, that. And the other thing, Paul Brown was a big on that when they signed Bill Berge. he just went, had a fit, um, And, uh, you know, Tech Schramm with the Cowboys, when they started getting players signed, they tried to get restraining orders. And it was a big deal. I think that the NFL really felt some heat. They knew they had a strike coming up in 74. They were worried about that. Um, They didn't know how long it was going to last. They had no idea whether it was going to be a whole season or not. It, you know, it set things back a little bit. And meanwhile, WFL is making news, making headlines. Um, you know, and I really think that the NFL, like Modell said, they panicked that time. They weren't going to do it again. But at that time I think they did because they really thought these guys got some money like Bassett did. He had money. He had his you know, the money to back him up. And he, you know, went out and he was going to do something and he was going to make a splash somewhere and he made a big one. So I think the NFL guys just kind of got put on high alert and, uh, it was. It was a big deal. I think it was a lot, a, a lot bigger deal than probably the NFL would admit now. But I thought it was. I thought it was a huge deal. And
2: the, you can tell they, they learned a lot from when the USFL took, came came through because it, it seemed they didn't have that same aggressive nature. It was almost like it. It almost seemed after seeing the, from the world football league, the USFL, was almost like, okay, spend your money. Let's see how long you can last. Cause we don't think you're going to last go ahead, Mm -hmm. waste your money. We'll still (laughs) be here.
0: Right? Yeah. I think that was, I think you're exactly right. I think, I think you got it right on the the nail on the head, Dave, because I think that's what they did. They kind of sat back and said, okay, sign Doug Flutie sign Herschel Walker. Let's see if you can make it, you know, see if you're going to have the attendance, you're going to make the money, you know, the, the good thing about uh, you know the USFL was, of course, they had ESPN and ABC, and that helped them a lot. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I think that there was a two different situations, and I think that that you know they learned from that. The NFL did that, and, hey, let's just kind of back off, see what happens, not like freak out on this. And and they were it was so close to
2: the AFL NFL merger, like it was so close, it was like well, we just underestimated these group of guys, right? Let's not, let's not let this. And then by the time another 10 years comes along going, yeah, we're good guys. We'll, we'll see you later.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good, good point too. I think it was a very good point. Mm -hmm. You know, there was still a lot of hard feelings, you know, from the merger and from the AFL, from the war. And, you know, it's like, here it is four years later and somebody else is coming along. What are we going to, you know, so, and like I said, and I think the NFL was kind of worried because they had to strike. They knew the strike was coming. Um, and nobody knew how long it was going to last. Was it going to last the whole season? Was it going to, they are going to have to cancel games? They had no idea. So I think that helped their, mm-hmm. their idea of really panicking and saying, oh, we better do something about this. So, yeah. yeah, it's a completely different mindset from, like you said, 10 years. They said, ah, ah, let's see what they do, <laughs> you know. So,
1: well, Mark, let me ask you when it comes to, you know, you mentioned in there about learning the lessons and with the world, world football league is any, I mean, how much, you know, you know, you get me on Facebook reaching out to you for an interview and you know, we've been Facebook, we've been Facebook friends for years and everything. right? But when it comes to the business aspect currently, mm-hmm. do you ever hear anybody in, in the, in the press, on the radio, on the pod, on the TV ever mention? the World Football League, when it comes to, say, the NFL right now, you've got – well, now we're down to one spring league popping up. But even when the USFL of the 80s Mm -hmm. came up, how how much was talked about with the lessons learned from the World Football League? How much do you see out there? Because, honestly, I don't see anything. I'm with you.
0: I I don't see – most everybody talks about the USFL, the 80s USFL. Nobody really talks about the WFL anymore. And, you know, I, I I think it gets lost in the shuffle. I don't like to see that. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's no there's no conversation about the WFL, what they did. Um, you know, so that's why guys like me and Richie Franklin and several other guys, uh, Richie started to the WFL project, which is on Facebook now, after he saw they went to heard that they took the other leagues um, display out of the Hall of Fame, he was upset about that. Wrote to him, called them. Where's this? Where's this at? Why is this not in here? So he didn't give him a very good answer. So he said, "I'm going to start my own WFL project," and that's what he's been. We've been doing it now since August, I think. And, is it, uh, is, is it
2: because of? Is it because of the? Lack of footage, like I, the USFL, just seems like it's just never gone away. Even though it's forty years ago, because there's so many games, like you, you could, you could spend months watching games on on YouTube. So it, in essence, really never went away if you really wanted to look for it. But it just the World Football League. It just seems to have so few games out there or, or to see it's it's almost a lot of grainy a lot of grainy footage yeah it's yeah. almost like folklore yeah. that it's like it's, it, it's, it, it, it just seems like that like it's to me it, it's fascinating i love it, it yeah. it's an amazing period of time in professional football but it's so hard to find anything in video wise which is like yeah the way everything works today
0: yeah no i know And you're absolutely right. It was kind of like the early ABA that kind of got lost in the shuffle where you don't, there's nothing about it. You know, you've got like, like Greg, like you said, there's like this grainy footage, you know, um, some highlight shows um, you know, that kind of thing. You don't see maybe parts of a game. Um, I see them on, you know, the, the guys in the WFL project kind of post those every once in a while, but yeah, you're right. You had, I, I remember ESPN Classic there. I guess that station's not around anymore. Unfortunately, no, apparently
1: like, not. It's yeah, it's one of those that just kind of fell by the wayside with YouTube. Yeah,
0: I loved it. I, you know, I, I I you know, like you could watch USFL games like two, three, four hours. You know, and they had because they had the games. ESPN aired them, so they had that in their library. Whereas you know, TBS, you know, I don't know if.
1: Any of those kept them and, if it's TV, and it's TV, V as in Victor S, not TBS as Turner Broadcasting.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. TVS, Yeah.
1: I always got that confused. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I don't, when I was a kid, you know, like TV. Yeah. I don't remember it growing, you know, but yeah. it, it, that just shows you too with the World Football League the impact of television. Yeah at least, you know, the impact of television, the impact of having a television contract, because like you said, obviously the, the, um, originally U.S. well, the USFL, because the other one that came down the road, I never really considered the USFL, <laughs> but you know, they had a contract right. on ABC hell. They had Howard Cosell. I mean, they, they, it was a legit, it was considered at the time, a legitimate league and they mm-hmm. you could watch games, but with the world football league, if you can only find one game a week on the UHF channel, and depending upon where you live at. Right. And just kind of just in a span, in a short span of time, just how much the media landscape had shifted. And also too the growth and
0: power of the NFL. Yeah. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, I, 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 I know they've got these spring leagues here now. I'm not really into them. I haven't been since probably the USFL, I think, was the last really one I paid attention to um, because the NFL is now 24-7, 365. you got the right. NFL network. Now the season back in the 70s, the Super Bowl was played in early January. Now we're up to middle of February. Then you go right into the, the draft. Then you go right into the OTAs. Then you go, you know, and there's no offseason anymore. And I think that's what helped the USFL in the 80s was that, and the WFL to an extent, you had an offseason. Right. I mean, I was a kid. You watched the Super Bowl. I didn't care about anything until the first game in, in September. I didn't care about the, the draft or anything like that or OTAs, which didn't even exist at the time, or, you know, combine. You know, they had all this. And they have this stuff now. And it's like people flock to this combine. You know, and the OTAs and, you know, you got the fantasy football, which wasn't was just basically getting started in the 80s and wasn't even around that much in the 70s. So you you've got this juggernaut now, you know, uh, unless you got like some kind of a widespread gambling scandal, the NFL is here to stay. I mean, It's the 300 pound elephant in the corner. It's never going to go away.
1: It's it's become man. too big. T- nobody's ever going to beat it. The days, I Ooh. think, me personally, and you know, talking about the spring leagues because you know we've been in recent past in recent episodes we've been talking more of the new spring league that that's been out. But I'm I'm kind of like you when it when it comes to the, you know it's like yeah that's nice you have it there, but you know like you man my interest in hardcore interest in spring football ended with the USFL. Right. And to me, that, that 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 those that ten year, approximately ten year period, was kind of the golden age, mm-hmm. I think, for football fans because you had the NFL in the seventies, which mm-hmm. the NFL in the seventies for anybody who didn't grow up in the seventies or wasn't alive to that to me that was the best because you mm-hmm. uh, just it just was yeah. I don't even know there's some great books, um, Michael McCambridge just wrote a great book about yeah. um, the. The the um, sports in the seventies, yeah. um, Joe Zagorski has written a great book yeah. about, and um, but that was the golden age, and it carried over into the eighties. But the NFL has become too big, and I agree with you. It's 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 constant. It's uh, yeah, and, I, and a lot of it has to do with the technological changes that have happened sure. in our sure. lifetime.
0: You know, like you said, streaming and all this other stuff going on, and you know the 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 idea that you know you've got the NFL Network, you've got it never leaves your consciousness. It never leaves the the public consciousness at all. The whole time, like I said, there's no off season. The Super Bowl is now, you know, in mid February. You got the combines, you got all that stuff, and people pay attention. You're not gonna, you're not if, if you're starting your training camp for a spring league in February. Nobody's gonna care. The Super Bowl's on. Nobody's gonna care. Right. You know. So, and I and I think they have gotten too big. I I, I don't know if. Ever anybody's ever going to beat them or not. I don't know if it's ever – I think that that everything at some point comes to an end. I don't know if they will. But but. the thing is, I guess two things. With the spring leagues, if they can do
2: 1% of what the NFL does in money, they're all making (laughs) money. Like, like It's one of those things where it's like when when you're looking at the astronomical billions that the NFL is making, the spring league, if they can do 1% – I think right. everyone's right. gonna be happy, everyone's gonna get paid. Right. And what right. I, and going back to the the world league, what what I liked about the WFL was and I do remember seventies football. And what I liked about the World Football League was it opened it up. Yeah. They yeah. they they tried to open it up and it oh, wasn't yeah. about the three yards and a cloud of dust. And yeah. They were giving like just like the ABA. That that's the one thing I loved about the ABA is let the players play, open up the yep. game, let 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 them let them show their personality, let them show how how the game can be played. Almost like a continuation of the American Football League. It was right. just so much more from the from the highlights and from the reading. It's just go out there and play football. Was it pretty? Not all the time. But it wasn't it wasn't the, the NFL model where it seemed like every single team played the exact same style. And it was just who was going to slug it out better than everybody else.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, the first football game I watched was in November of 69. The Jets and the Chiefs. And I only I was 11 years old. Fell in love with the Chiefs because they had red pants. I just thought that was a – for an 11-year-old, that was the coolest thing, you know. And, uh, you know, and I like Joe, Joe Namath, and it was a good game. And I didn't stop watching it till early 2000s. I mean, you know, I was – but the 70s to me, I'm with you guys. You know, it was, it was a hard-hitting game. It was tough. You had really a lot of great players. You had – you know, muddy games, you had rainy games, you had snow games, you had, you know, um, teams that just hit and, you know, not, you know, borderline dirty sometimes, but, you know, it was a hard hitting league. It was, it was tough. It was three yards, of cloud of dust, like you said, but again, like you said, and I agree, the WFL came along, let's put a a receiver on. He has to have one foot in bounds when he, when he catches a pass. Let's open up the offense. Let's let make sure the kickers don't dominate like they have been. Um, let's open up the game. Let's throw the ball. Let's see what we can do. You know they had the Bell with King Cochran and, and Waller, all these wild formations and stuff. And some of the other teams um, did the same thing. So you know, and I think that just carried over to you know San Diego Chargers with Corey L with all the offense. And I know that they had the um, Mel Blunt rule, you know, in the late 70s that changed the passing game. But um, I think it was still fairly, you know, into the 80s, I I would say. I mean, I watched it and I was still watching it when I was in college in the 80s. You know, um, but that was my favorite era, too. It was mine. I I love the books about it. Like some of you mentioned, there was Hell with the Lid Off. I just finished that and, one and the Raiders, a oh, great book. Oh, awesome. And, uh, you know, some of the, some of the other ones about, you know, the Raiders of that era, the Madden Raiders. I, um, um I
1: just completed like last month, I went on a Oakland Raiders spree, <laughs> 70s Oakland Raiders spree. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, it's just, I'm smiling as you're mentioning, like, yeah, just, yeah, I got done with that one too. So it's, yeah. but yeah, that was the magic. Um, you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, kind of like, I don't know, for us guys, somebody would probably say when men were men. I mean, yeah. back then the guys were, you know, played the game were kind of, you know, pretty much, I mean the NFL was a working class league. I mean, yeah. these guys did, I mean, these guys had to have second jobs in yeah. the offseason. I remember exactly. Bob Greasy, I think, sold real estate and yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I could go on the list of guys, other of second jobs, but, but yeah, yeah, it was before the money became really, really big right. and um also too i think before again i'm not trying to make any statement at all but you know the the nfl has become more and more entertainment and we know that you know sonny werblin's wife once said to joe namath "Football's just show business yeah. and which <laughs> it, it always has been but i think and again we're older too we're old guys so we right. you know we remember that fondly and but I think also too, at least me, I don't really get too worked up about the way the game is now because technology has changed, the world mm-hmm. has changed. Yeah. But I'm like you. I would if i have given a choice between watching the Super Bowl and watching, let's just say my first Super Bowl, Super Bowl eleven, I'm gonna watch yeah. Super Bowl eleven.
0: Sure, <laughs> I do the same thing yeah. in a second. Yeah, the first one I watched was Super Bowl Four with the Chiefs and the Vikings, and you know the field was muddy. It was down in New Orleans, and what was it, uh, Tulane Stadium? And you know it was just a different era, different time, but it was great. And uh, you know, it's like music. At least I think so. Anyway, the music you listen to as a kid and as a young teenager is the music that sticks with you. Right, you may yeah. like some of this stuff now. You may like some of the movies now, but everything makes an indelible mark on you. Yeah. And I think that's with, the way it was, with was uh, with, I think with all sports, you know, basketball, hockey, mm-hmm. uh, baseball, you know, I mean, I still watch baseball. I still watch hockey, but you know, basketball, I can't watch anymore. I used to love to watch it. Um, but, you know, you had the ABA with that ball and some of the great players they had, but you know, the NFL, like you said, the money came for, comes first. Now um, you got to protect the shield. You know, you can't have crazy guys like you see the shot of Ted Hendricks with that mask on and the, on the sidelines with that big smile on his on the, on the mask's face. You don't see that. Kenny Staber with a big smiley face on the back of his helmet. That kind of stuff I miss. I really miss that kind of stuff. I saw a couple guys posting about Conrad Dobler. And his left hand, he was sitting on And it looked like this club, like this big, like it was this big. How did that guy get into the, didn't the you know, and the, and the Raiders would say they had, they, they would check you before the game, but then you'd go into the locker yeah. room and put this stuff on. Well, and the old he, edge is if was, you ain't cheating,
1: you ain't trying.
0: Right. Well, like, you know, and, but I couldn't believe the size of this guy's, it was a club on it. You know, and they used to talk about Bob Brown who had a broken thumb for like eight years and he had this huge cast on his thumb and he would just, you know, drive it into some guy's stomach and, and knock him back it was just a different time but it was it's almost i mean you know it 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 i miss it and i it's it's like mythical to me
2: yeah you know i that, I, I grew up i grew up in buffalo and i never want to go back and watch any of those super bowls ever again i'm good <laughs> i am i am perfectly fine I, moving into the present i uh, I, I can understand I, I'm, that i'm i'm all set i mean I, even going <laughs> back to the 7 it was, and, and this is the thing is like the, the 7 i The only, the only thing I would talk about with the 70s is it's before free agency. It was still when if you sign somebody, you sign them for life. Mm -hmm. So the good teams at the end of the 60s were good throughout the 70s because you weren't going anywhere. Right. And it, it was, I mean, growing up in Buffalo, I mean OJ Simpson in that running game was just amazing. And I like Joe Ferguson. He had great moments. But when you look back at the, those old box scores and you see seven passes, eight passes, <laughs> five passes, right. and you're running OJ 48 times a game, you're not winning a whole lot because no, <laughs> one's, you're, no one's expecting Ferguson to throw a pass, so you right. just crowd it. And if they had just, just a little bit, then nothing against – I mean, I'm, I wasn't the coach – Obviously, they had a game plan. They were gonna run to win because that's what you did. But mm-hmm. just any kind of <laughs> just fifteen passes just opened up a little bit. What could have been? There were some really good Bills teams in the seventies that that just couldn't get past Miami. Couldn't get past like it was just it was just tough to watch. It, it was just <laughs> tough to follow. And then you get to the nineties. I'm like, yeah, I'm all set. Like, just I'm I'm good.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I. I've got a lot of I'm in the Western New York PFRA chapter, and there's a lot of Bills fans in that chapter. And I hear all a lot of the same things. You know, they they are diehard Bills fans. There's time there's eras that they don't want to talk about, those Super Bowls. And so I know what you mean. So, but you know, like I said, 70s, early 80s. I I was a big Joe Montana fan, still am. I just love watching Joe. He was just one of those guys that you know, I remember Dwight Clark saying, "He said he was just so small. He looked like a punter. He said he must be the new punter." You know, and it was like Joe just—you know—he was in there, and you give him like ten seconds, he'll beat you. you know, Joe, I Joe saw him against had, the Bengals.
1: Joe just had something about him, and I remember watching him when he played for Notre Dame.
0: He yeah, just,
1: there was something about—even me as a kid knowing, okay, this guy going to be this. This guy is going to be a star someday. Yeah, and Low and be. I mean, he was a second round draft pick. So I mean, it wasn't like he. I think he was a second round draft pick, if I'm not mistaken. It was.
0: It was not uh, very high. I know. That. Yeah, I can tell you right
1: and off the bat. and that was yeah. part of that era with the '70s, and you know, going into the yeah. It just, but you know, as you know, talking about football. I mean, to us, I mean, Dave and I are huge CFL fans. Do you get yeah. a chance to watch any CFL?
0: Oh yeah, I love the CFL. Okay. I love to watch the CFL. Because to you me, know, that's I, still very much,
1: that's like the last of the old school leagues.
0: I think it is. I agree. And that's why I think we probably, three of us probably like to watch it because it's more not the money. It's just, you know, you're talking about, you know, loyalties to teams like Hamilton, Winnipeg and all that kind of thing. You know, the, the, they play no matter what the weather because they have to, it's in Canada. Right. And, you know, it, it, the money is not a big factor. So I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I, I love watching it when, it, when the, when they come on and they start wherever they're at, I try to tune them in Yeah, you know, because yeah. I like it. I like the CFL. I always, you know, I remember the, I don't know. You guys probably remember the old street and Smiths. Football. Oh yeah. Right and, at the end you of know, the They back, had the back, CFL the very
1: back. There was the very the back at the coverage.
0: CFL. And you had all the guys like the imports, you know, and you know, they even had the WFL. They had the WFL when they, in 74 and 75, they had articles about it in the, in the, uh, in the street and Smith. So I've got, Oh 68 to probably early 80s I got every oh, issue. Oh wow. I, I love that magazine. And I got I've just been going around to secondhand stores and you know it, flea it, markets and you can grab them for fairly cheap.
1: You know so. what now that you mention it cuz um obviously being over here I can't there's no place I can find those. But on the internet, internet archive. A lot of people yeah. have have uploaded and you know and and done PDF versions. Of, so that might be my project today. Might be going and looking through there some of go. those old street and Smiths. Um, because, yeah, I mean, that's the three of us. We like living in the past and just because we're all <laughs> historians and, you know, being yeah. a podcast or being like you who has got, you know, countless books now. I mean, like I said, I've got I've got them all right here, but I got so many of yours that I couldn't even <laughs> tell you how many I got.
0: Well, and, I appreciate that. Like I said Oh, you're before,
1: welcome. Greg, you're really welcome. Do. And um, so, with the PFRA and the World Football League project, could you tell us is the that the World Football League project part of what the PFRA is doing right now, or is it is is it a kind of like a side quest or or some? Go ahead and explain. Sorry. Oh, the
0: the WFL project that's on Facebook. Yeah, you mean? yeah, that's that's a grassroots thing with Richie. Richie started okay. that up. And there's 10 of us that's in it that are either collectors or historians. Um, and we we post on there. I mean, uh, it's it's called the WFL Project if you haven't joined it. Um, by all means, do so because we talk about a lot of stuff. There's guys with uh, collections of, I mean, just huge collections of stuff. There's this one guy who has like equipment bags from like every team. I mean, It's amazing what I've are, seen
1: on that site.
0: Yeah, and it's page. just, you know, and you got researchers. I do a today in the WFL every day, what happened on this day, um, whatever the year it was, um, and I do that every day. I run a Blazers page, a Florida Blazers page um, that's just mine. I you know, I'll, you know, again, whatever happens on the day that occurred you know, with the Blazers. Um, yeah, it's it's really not with the PFRA Richie wasn't a PFRA. I, I guess he still is. He thought he dropped out, but I guess he still is. Um, because I said, are you still into PFRA? Well, oh yeah. <laughs> so um, you know, um, but yeah, it's just the grassroots thing. We got, you know, a lot of a lot of former players. We've got a lot of right. former coaches, we've got cheerleaders, we've got fans, we've got, you know, I mean, a lot of different players. Lot, Bob Glad Joe just joined up. Uh, from the stars, he played for the Patriots. Um, I, I, the one guy I wish I would have wrote, written a book about the WFL was Tom Beer. I don't know, you guys, yeah, you guys I'm... probably read his book. I wish he, he was going to write a book. He was talking about it there when the league ended. And they were talking to him, and he said, "I I should write a book about it because he'd written that Sunday's Fools, which is one of my favorite books." And uh, I wish he'd have written a book, Um but you know, a lot of the a lot of people. They're just a great bunch of people. It really is. I mean, we enjoy hanging out. Um, there's usually not too many. We kind of screen people when they come in. I think you got to do that anymore. Um,
1: yeah, you do. You, you, you really do. Yeah. I'm
0: in a Turner classic movie site that just, you know, people, if you don't like somebody's movie, they're all over. you like, stink up. Oh yeah. Something. It's like, come yeah. on. You know, it's not our, our problem is that we don't, it's not that we disagree. It's that we can't understand why we don't why you disagree. So many right. people can't just, why don't you like that movie? It's because like, I don't, you know. Yeah.
1: Or just, just even just let it go. Just yeah, let just,
0: it go. Just yeah. scroll. Just keep scrolling, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But people can't do that. So, you know, so we do that, um, you know, and I, I've i got one for the Central Pennsylvania Whitetail Bucks, which I love doing that book. I, I interviewed a lot of guys for, from the team because they were from my area. I, I lived down in central Pennsylvania and they were in there when I was in high school and just a great bunch of guys. I remember the first time I met them and there was, I think, eight or nine of them and they just all started talking and telling stories. And I just sat there, I'm right, you know, and they said, finally, after about an hour, they're like, are you going to ask us any questions? And I said, no, you're just telling your stories. I'm just writing it down. So anyway, but yeah, so um, WFL is just, it always has and always will fascinate. I still find little snippets and little tidbits when I'm doing research. that I go down a rabbit hole and I'm seeing this and I'm seeing this. You know, now the last couple of days I've been researching that HBO carried the games uh, in 74 and 75. HBO was just starting out and it's kind of started out in 73 and it hooked up with Sterling Manhattan Cable. And it joined up with them, and they ran their cables under New York City because they had lost their power so often in with the storms and everything in New York City that they ran them through the tunnels. So HBO started out as just like a premium channel, right. six, seven bucks a month. And they decided they they had, you know, they, they made contracts with individual teams And they had all the New York teams, obviously, because it was basically located in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. And Mm -hmm. he had like 23,000 subscribers. So it was small, but they ran um, games for the better part of like July, August, September and into early October. And then (laughs) when the Yankees, because they had a contract with the Yankees, they had a contract with the Knicks and the Rangers when they started up and the pennant started up, you know, pennant races, then uh, HBO would just preempt the WFL and go to whatever. Okay. We got the Rangers on tonight to heck with the WFL. And then in uh in early 75, they said they were going to thinking about doing it again, airing the WFL games Didn't make a lot of money for the league, but you know, it was, it was out there getting, you know, exposure. And uh, by 75, then they had, gone satellite and most of the games they did in uh in 75 were memphis obviously because he had zonka kicking warfield so most of those games were were involved memphis at some point and whereas 74 was all the new york stars and the philadelphia bell home games because that was where the 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 company was located with pennsylvania new york and jersey so that's the games he got then and uh but in 75 they they carried quite a few again um, and, uh, but yeah, that was interesting. Just finding that out. And then I found out a little tidbit that in, uh, the game in 74, I think it was the wheels and the stars. Um, they had a woman do color commentary, Barbara Sheehan, hmm. who was the first woman to do color commentary on a football game on TV. And it had Jane Chastain. I don't know if you remember her, not from the seventies. She had done a game as a guest announcer in the WFL in like August, and she was the first woman to actually sit in the booth. So you had stuff like that that happened um you know the HBO did I, I'd heard over the years that HBO had had carried some of the games and they did and I you know it's on the schedule so you there. thought it was
1: it was it sounded like it was probably like it sounds like an urban legend. But yeah, then, I mean, at the yeah, time, I thought that's yeah, what it
0: was. Yeah. Oh no, HBO, come on! What are they but there, they have got their, you know, their big full-page ad. Here's the movies we're showing this month. We've got ABA, NBA basketball. We got the Yankees. We got the Rangers. We got the Knicks, and we got the World Football. Wow. And there's a picture of I think Anthony Davis running against Memphis in the in there, and they they did, and they had a schedule where they were showing what game they would show that week wow. in '74. And uh, yeah, it was something that I, you know, had nothing to know, I didn't know anything about, it except like you said, it was an urban legend. Somebody's making this up,
1: no right, but right.
0: they did. So, uh, I found that out. Jane Chastain and Barbara Sheehan both were in a booth, um, again in the WFL. Um, Dave Williams, the wide receiver for the uh, Southern California Sun, was the first. Athlete to have arthroscopic surgery on his knee. Nobody had ever had it done before. It was uh September of 75. Two days he was on the practice field and he played that week. Wow. And it was WFL. It was history in the making. The guy who did it had done it before with regular, you know, his regular patients. He was the first athlete. So again, this is something that happened in the WFL that I'm hoping to bring to the forefront that people remember this stuff, as well as that we talked about earlier, some of the negatives, some of the bad stuff. And, you know, you have to include that because they lost $30 million in a year and a half, which I think comes out to like 170 million now in, in 2023 dollars. So, but there was a lot of positives and there was a lot of things that happened that should be, you know, noted and should be kept noteworthy that you had yeah. women in the front office, you had a lot of black ownership, you had black head coaches, black assistant coaches, you had women in the front office, you had women in the broadcast booth. You know, you had a guest in the in the an announce booth, and an ESPN was doing that like 20 years later, they would have like you know, a guest announcer in the ESPN NFL games. The WFL did that in the you know, and, you know, you had McLean Stevenson, you had Burt Reynolds, you had, uh, you know, Dick bloodkiss you had, uh, you know, all these different Jack Kemp was in it. Uh, for you, um, Dave, Jack Kemp was in one was, was at one of the games. So, you know, they did a lot of things. And I think we touched on this earlier about the, the, the forward looking thinking that they did. They did things a lot sooner than than other You know, the NFL did, or the, you know, the USFL maybe did.
1: And they brought football, pro football to cities that had never experienced pro football. Um, Obviously, Hawaii, you know, going out to Hawaii, Charlotte, when Upton brought the star, you know, when this, I, cause off the top of my head, I can't remember. Did Upton bring the stars down or did the stars? I I can't remember off the top. I talked to (laughs) Upton a couple weeks, uh, a couple weeks. I can't yeah, remember.
0: <laughs> I I think what he did was he got a he, he bought the team. I don't know if he ever got his money from Robert Schmertz, the guy who owned the Celtics and he owned the Stars. It was like seven hundred thousand he was supposed to get. Yeah. I don't know if he got like so much on the dollar or what. I never found that information. But he brought him down there to Charlotte. You had Jacksonville. You got the Jaguars now. You got the Panthers there, like you said, in, in Carolina, um, you know, San Antonio has been in the CFL, the CFL America, um, um, you know, the Hawaiians. you know, again, I think the travel was the only reason why you don't have that, but you know, they did, they brought, again, a lot of things that were ahead of its time that people I think forget about. And I think that, That's one of my goals and one of my aims on my books is to make sure that people don't forget these things because it can happen. Like you said, there's no game footage. There's nothing like the ESPN has the USFL. So, you know, it's almost like a legend, like an urban legend, like a mythical thing that didn't really happen. Who knows in another 20, 30, 40 years? I mean, you know, hopefully it will.
1: Well, Um, unfortunately, unfortunately too, the World Football League does live on and and dave and i are both simulation sports geeks and Uh, mark i know you and i talked about this you know offline uh god probably a couple maybe a month or two ago yeah you know you've got on the computer the compute, you know the great thing about the the one thing about the the age we live in now is you know guys like us you know what i'm tired of not let me go play let me see how you know, let me go play simulation sports because there's a whole subculture of guys, mm-hmm. older guys like us that love to play these games that we grew up with. And I know with, um, second and 10, the program second and 10, and also mm-hmm. action PC sports, they have world football seat for, I'm sorry, they have world football league seasons. And mm-hmm. the great thing about the second and 10 one is they got all the helmets. They got all the logos <laughs> and you know, they got all the stats. So it's fun to, you know, see how, but then you can mix and match and see how, you know, King Cock- right. Corcoran would have done against, you know, Joe Namath, who, you know, he's, you know, um <laughs> he played with uh, for the cup of coffee he had with the Jets. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: that, well, Mark, on I, that, yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, no, I was just going to say one more thing was that another thing I just popped into my head while, you know, while we we're talking is that they use the, the, the colored face masks. I think they were one of the first leagues to do that with the, they really? had the blue ones um who else I mean they, I think Jacksonville had silver um but you know they used the uh the, the the face masks of different colors okay whereas the NFL just had the gray you know and uh now they all do it so again things that that's um, one of those
1: little things I never thought about I'm like yeah, yeah you're right I forgot yeah. about that I didn't even realize that
0: <laughs> so you know a lot of things that you can remember it for that aren't negative a lot of positives a lot of things that were ahead of its time
1: right, right. Yeah. well listen on uh, gents on that note let's uh let's wrap everything up mark before we let you go here and obviously we're gonna have you stay on the line here for a little bit after we hit the stop button but how can people find first of all all your books and buy your books and also find you you know my guess is probably social media wise, you hang out there at uh, on Facebook with uh, the various World Football League pages that yeah. uh, you do. Know. Yeah,
0: um, the books are through St. Johan Press in uh, New Jersey, little small mom and pop uh, outfit, but they're great people. I've worked with Dave now for 18 years. Uh, he's the publisher um, and he's a great guy. Amazon has all my books on it. You can find them there. Um, If you order through the. uh, Order through Amazon, if you mention um, St. Johan Press and the website where Richie has his books, he has his old website uh, that he still maintains. Um, And if you mention it, you get free shipping. Um, Oh, cool. So, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that's how you get them um i i think they're still selling i don't get a whole lot of money from it i don't do it for the money um i'm no jk rowling or <laughs> tolkien or anybody like that or Stephen king um i'd love to be but you know you get what you get and i just well, do it for the sheer enjoyment of
1: it. well and also too i'm thinking about it because i i lived in i i love libraries i'm just a library geek oh yeah and too. just you know you think about it you know you're going to when we're all, you know, both, all of us are gone. Your books are still going to live on. So you're, you know, um, and the other thing too, is you've covered a period of history. Nobody else has really covered it. So, you know, (laughs) that's how I look. So that's why, you know, when we've, I've done the, we've done these podcasts with authors in the, in the past, I kind of go fanboy. So, you know, (laughs) it's your turn now. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, and that's that's what my publisher writes about. He likes slice of life books. He goes, I don't need another Yankees book. There's 175 Yankees books out there, you know. He wants something that's that's here was here and now gone,
1: right? You know
0: that it's a slice of life, something that was there, piece of history. Um He loves that kind of thing, and uh, it kind
1: of captures the era. You're sitting there, you're reading it, yeah. and you take takes you right back to when you were a kid
0: yeah and a lot of times i will put like current events of the time incorporate them in the narrative in my books right because i think that just you know sets a tone sets a gets people in like you those said those
1: are those those to me are the best books because as a kid growing up i mean i wasn't the greatest kid a uh, student <laughs> in school but i loved history but i also love right. sports yeah what well, better way to learn you know to learn about history than through sports. But like you said, including what was going on outside the stadium at the time. So yeah, Mm -hmm. no, I, uh, yeah. So for everybody listening, uh, we're going to include links to, you know, where to, where to buy Mark's books and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get some more sales for you out of this uh, podcast. And with that said, I'm very hopeful. You will put this podcast on your Facebook webpage. um, the facebook page for the wfl and for the blazers and yeah get it out there so more people can hear you and um you know mark thank you very much for sitting down with us it's been for me it's been an honor and a pleasure and i know for david has too and uh we will talk more on the flip side here after i press the stop button but for everybody who has been listening thank you very much for tuning in we will be back next week Fran, hopefully, hopefully we'll have Fran phoning in um, from wherever he's traveling at with our Sports Central to give us an update as to uh, what's going on in the wide world of minor league sports. On behalf of David, and myself and Mark, thank you very much for listening, and we will be talking to you all soon. Bye-bye.